Hello everyone, this is Molly Rowan Leach. Welcome to this special edition with honored guest speaker Sebastian Younger, internationally renowned for many of his written works as well as an Oscar-nominated documentarian. We discussed the movie that he made in honor of his friend's life, Tim Hetherington, Which Way is the Front Line from Here? This was a special edition of the ongoing series, Restorative Justice on the Rise, co-sponsored by the Peace Alliance. We hope you'll enjoy this profound dialogue we had with Sebastian, and we sure appreciate his taking the time to talk with us on this series. For more information, please go to thepeacealliance.org, and for more information also about the movie, you can Google it and you'll find a lot of information. Which way is the front line from here? The Life and Time of Tim Hetherington. Enjoy this dialogue with Sebastian Younger. Welcome, everyone. Hello, this is Molly Rowan Leach, and I'm your host for this live ongoing dialogue series, Restorative Justice on the Rise, which is an international series co-sponsored by the Peace Alliance, providing a virtual platform for education, conversation, and respectful, as well as very inspired dialogue with diverse representatives from the justice conversation, as well as much beyond. We often build into the series special editions that feature honored guests like the one we have today, internationally renowned best-selling author and Oscar-nominated documentarian, Sebastian Younger, whom I'll introduce in just a moment. Today's conversation with Sebastian, first and foremost, is dedicated to the spirit and life of image maker and humanitarian Tim Hetherington, who himself recognized and wished to illuminate the deep complexities and existences we live within in this one precious world we share. Sebastian and Tim risked their lives to bring undistorted imagery of some of these complexities and hoped to, to elicit dialogue about challenging subjects in a way that also brilliantly uncovers and uncovered our irrevocable connection as one humanity and one people. I had the honor just recently of joining Sebastian, as well as Tim's mother and father and his beloved and many friends and colleagues, documentarians and such, in New York uh, in this, just this past April for the HBO premiere of his documentary, Which Way is the Front Line from Here? We're going to unpack the deeper aspects of this film together, Tim's life and his key messages, uh, his questions, and invite some webcast questions as well from you, participants. Um, you're an important part of this dialogue. And uh, with the help of the Peace Alliance's Vice President, Matthew Albrecht, who is with us today during this live session. So a uh, welcome to you, Matthew, and a thank you to all that you've done for this organization and beyond. He's joining us today live from the Bay Area. So without further ado, I'd like to just go ahead and dive in. And um, again, in honor of Tim Hetherington's life and uh, to yours as well, Sebastian. I just want to um, also recognize all of the people in our world who risk their lives to 
in the media and beyond to bring truth and to bring um, perspectives that are really important to uh, the human dialogue. So welcome to that. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on with you. It's great to have you. And uh, just a lot of times on these dialogues, I like to start out with the personal um, or some kind of story that you'd like to share about your journey that brought you into um, perhaps to Liberia or to your writing or whatever it is that you'd like to share with us that has led you to this particular point in your life. Well, I, I, um, I came to war reporting very late in life. My father grew up in Europe, and he was very affected by World War II. His, his father was Jewish, and uh, he came to this country and feels that this country saved, basically saved the world in the face of you know, Nazi fascism. And, um, but I, you know, I grew up in you know, Vietnam, very anti-war, Cambridge, Massachusetts, like, and not having experienced anything like that, not knowing much about it. And in, you know, I was about 30 years old. I worked as a waiter and, you know, et cetera, and I was wanting to be a writer and, you know, all that. And sort of went on in my 20s and didn't really go anywhere. And there was a war in Bosnia. And I remember thinking, I want to understand war better. It affected my family so much. I want to understand what it is, how it works. And I also, I mean, I hate to put this so bluntly, but I grew up in a really wealthy suburb. And I felt like I'd never been tested in any any meaningful way. And and as a result, I didn't really feel like a man. And I had this sense that, you know, war is one way in which, you know, boys turn into men. And I had this sense that if I went to war, I would be changed in really meaningful ways and good ways. Um, and off I went to Bosnia to cover, cover the civil war there. And it, it completely changed my understanding of military force and of violence and how this stuff starts and how what we all need to do to get it to stop. In the case of Bosnia, NATO started dropping bombs on Serb forces and got, you know, basically stopped the genocide in about 10 days. But the, the dropping of bombs on people, which I grew up thinking was the worst thing ever, in the context of a genocide suddenly seemed to kind of make sense. And it made my unequivocal anti-war position way more complicated uh, mm. And there was a huge gray area that I really had to kind of explore. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the aspect that you just pointed to seems to be, I'd, I'd like to go into how you and Tim came together, how you met, and then let's talk about the film as kind of the opener into the conversation today um, on a deeper level. But <clears throat> Tim mentions... Um, prominently in this amazing film that you've created with an, an extraordinary team, <laughs> I'm sure. Yes, um, yes. That privilege is one of the things that was really important to him. In fact, his father, I believe his name is Alistair, correct? That, that yes. he and, and his father would have conversations about uh, privilege. So could you speak a little bit more of what, what, what that meant to Tim, how you guys got together, um, and what led into creating this film? Well, I mean, what led to creating the film was Tim getting killed in Misrata, Libya, from uh, a mortar fired by Gaddafi forces uh, on April 20, two years ago. Um, and Tim and I had worked together in Afghanistan. We were at a small outpost called Restrepo, off and on for a year. We made a documentary film called Restrepo that went all the way to the Oscars. Uh, and 
while we're at the Oscars, the Arab world is, you know, erupting and we're journalists and we felt like we should be out there covering the Arab Spring, which is such an incredible event. We got an assignment from Vanity Fair to, um, to cover the events in Libya and, and in Cairo. And at the last minute, I couldn't go. And Tim went on his own and he kind of got sucked into the drama of frontline combat and, and got killed. And immediately I felt like I should make a film uh, about his tragic death, but also about his extraordinary life. Uh, and so that's, that was the genesis of the film. Um, and, but he, you know, he, Tim was from a very similar background as I was. Like, I mean, he was from an upper middle class English family, and he was very conscious of that. And, he, you know, he would ha have talks with his father about privilege, and his father you know, it's sort of, okay, they're not wealthy, wealthy people, right? So he's like, listen, we're, we're not privileged, really, you know, and, and Tim said, you're privileged in ways you don't even know that you have the power to decide your future. And most of the third world does not. They're subject to forces that are way more powerful than they are, and they just get carried along by the stream of human events, and there's not much they can do about it. Civil wars, famines, droughts, etc. You're actually making choices about your future, and that puts um, an awful lot of people in the Western world in, you know, you talk about the 1%, right? Well, m most of the Western world is in the 1% globally, and it's very, very hard to acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking today a bit about um, some of the, well, there's many things that we take for granted that um, most of the rest of the world doesn't even have in place within their simple yeah. household provisions. So. Uh, I just found yeah. in my own perspective um, the the uh, appreciation of what I think both you and Tim were concerned with in looking at um, bringing a higher dialogue around privilege, around uh, what what our daily lives really are about in the Western world, what what we um, may or may not really find um, to uh, you know, to define what life really is about. It's there's there's multiple realities happening here in this world, and yeah. I guess that leads into um, this this piece that you know the which way is the front line from here begins with uh, just an incredibly uh, I think refreshing opening where Tim is stumbling a bit like I am right now around these, these principles. And um, I think the question he was asked, he's, he's being interviewed at the beginning of the film before you even really go into the, the beginning of it. Um, and tell us a little bit about what he was trying to convey. Was, was the question about his work um, about the meaning of what he was trying to accomplish. I, I know he touches on connecting with yeah. real people, you know, uh, documenting yeah, extreme situations, and also showing that there aren't neat solutions. Can can you share a bit about that? Yeah, I can't remember it verbatim, but basically he was doing a interview <laughs> in England, and, and he was asked, you know, like, why do you do this kind of work? And, you know, he spat out a kind of typical and very acceptable sort of humanitarian answer, you know, like, you know, the world needs to witness, blah, 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 you know, all true. But then he realized that, you know, he wasn't saying anything useful or new. It's boilerplate humanitarian language that no one's going to question and that any TV producer is going to be perfectly content with. But frankly, it doesn't 
provide any insight at all. And uh, so he tried again and then tried again and he tried again and he did like five different takes until he said what, um, you know, what he, what he felt comfortable with. And what I loved about that with Tim, and again, I can't remember his answer verbatim, but he was groping for some honesty, honesty about this. And what I love about Tim right. is that he's, he's not content with what other, you know, like he has much higher standards for himself than other people had for him. And he just kept doing it, overthinking it and doing it until he got it right. And that's how we start the film, this classic sort of Tim moment. Mm. Tell, tell us a little bit more about um, the, the two of you. What, you know, your time at Restrepo was uh, really key um, around some of these common themes that flesh out in the film itself. Um, what, are, what were the commonalities that you, you two discovered in um, being in the Korangal Valley and, and then also uh, obviously how they connect with Tim's life in general and what he was trying to achieve. We were trying to understand the relationship between young men and war. And, you know, conservatives think that young men go to war, and it was all men in, at Restrepo, by the way. There were no women out there. It was combat infantry. It was all men. So when I say men, I mean that literally. So, so Conservatives sort of think that, you know, young men sign up to fight out of patriotism and, you know, et cetera. It's not really true, um, not universally true. And I think liberals, and again, I grew up in a very liberal town, a very liberal family. Liberals feel that, you know, basically young men get manipulated or drafted into the process and are basically cannon, unwilling cannon fodder. You know, both are completely false. And what, I, what Tim and I saw out there were young men who were experiencing the most intense thing in their lives who grew to really love it and who missed it terribly when they went home. And that is a truth that Tim saw in Liberia and in Sierra Leone. And I think if you read the Iliad carefully enough, you'd probably see it in the Iliad as well. All the way back through human history, this male response to war, it's, it, it's very complex um, and doesn't fit into neat political boxes. And, but it's an uncomfortable truth. And, and what, what we wanted to do is make a film about that uncomfortable truth, like the real relationship between young men and war, what it does to them, but also what it does for them. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that was Oscar-nominated in 2011, and the two of you had some time together before, as you said, he took off to Libya and um, unfortunately was tragically killed there. Yeah. So I um just um thinking here about the media as a channel but I uh, you bring up such an important topic um around the the ma you know males and bonding um it's it's an extraordinary topic and it also connects into a book that Tim created which um you know illuminated the sleeping soldiers series and you know a lot of the, a lot of people here to, with us today probably know quite a bit about that series but for those that don't um i highly encourage that you would check out the the book infidel um that highlights the the photographic journeys and also in the back has um diaries of sorts of some of the young men um, or interviews, I believe, that Tim did that are, are insights and windows into their experiences. 
Um, Sebastian, could you could you say a few words though about this Sleeping Soldiers series and how it relates to uh, the aspect of of male bonding and humanity, um, and what what Tim was maybe trying to achieve in the vulnerability as well. Well, we you know we were at yes absolutely we were at this little outpost called Restrepo. It was up on a ridge, about an hour and a half walk from the company uh, the company base. Um, and it was about 20 men up on this ridge. There was no internet. There was no phone. There was no running water. There was no cooked food. Uh, it was sort of sandbags and ammo and MREs for a year. There was no women. There was no TV. There was no nothing that young men like, right? And these guys were up there for a year, but there was a lot of combat. And, you know, our first day up there, the outpost got hit very hard four times. Uh, their record was 14 firefights in one day. And um, so, you know, we, it was very easy to, you know, see this place as a place of combat and nothing else, because combat is so dramatic, it kind of steals the show. You know, if you're running a video camera, as Tim and I both were, like, it, it, it seems like the point of everything and the most intense thing. And, and Tim realized, at one point he said to me, he said, you know, I'm realizing the, le the least interesting thing about combat is combat. It's mechanical and repetitive and actually not that interesting. It's intense, but it's not that interesting. He said, what's really interesting is the emotional connections between the men in this weird place and, and how vulnerable they are when they're not all geared up in their, you know, behind, you know, with their guns and their armor. Like, they're just boys. And, and, he, and he saw it when they were sleeping. And one day, you know, we hadn't, had a, we hadn't been in a firefight in at least a week, and everyone was getting really bored and kind of grumpy because there was nothing to do. And that, and when that happened, they would just try to sleep a lot. And so they was, they were just all zonked out. It was a hot day, flies buzzing, you know, the outpost. And, and Tim was scuttling around taking photographs of all these sleeping soldiers in their bunks, on the ground, you know, like everywhere. And I said, Tim, man, what are you doing? And he said, listen, you don't get it. Like, no one ever gets to see soldiers like this, asleep, looking like they're 15 years old. This is how their mothers see them. The nation sees them as these tough guys in their armor and their guns. The, their mothers see them like this, like boys who are asleep and vulnerable. And that's what his photographs capture. And in some ways, it's the most eloquent statement about war that you could ever have. It's way, it says way more about war in some ways than a photo of a guy firing a gun. That mother's perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I, I really would highly encourage everyone to check out, if you haven't already, pick up a copy of Infidel, um, which kind of brings me to a point. I'd like to dive in in a moment to the media um, piece around uh, how we bring a window uh, and a bridge with these multiple realities that exist in our world and maybe even talk a little bit about diary. But let's go back for a minute to Liberia and... Um, I'd like to hear you share a little bit about your experience there and the commonalities that you and, and Tim shared. Tim did, did spend quite a bit of time there. In fact, he, he didn't leave when the story broke. Is that true? Well, he, um, I mean, we both wound up there during the Civil War in 2003. He was with the Lurd rebels who were advancing on Monrovia and attacked Monrovia. I was in, the, in Monrovia with government fighters. Um, you know, they're not soldiers, they're teenage boys. They're stripped to the waist and fighting, you know, like they're not, they're not soldiers. And the rebels obviously are, um, 
you know, pretty out of control themselves. And everyone was on drugs. Everyone was drinking. It was sort of a nightmarish, futuristic scenario mm-hmm. from the end of the world is what it felt like. Mm-hmm. And um, Monrovia was getting hit very hard. I had trouble. I had real problems with the Taylor government. I mean, Taylor was an awful, awful, oppressive, cruel, sadistic leader and um, killed a and lot of people. did he have a price people. on uh, Tim's head? Yeah, I mean, he was very paranoid. So he was very upset that there were uh, journalists with the rebels sort of documenting, you know, that things were different from what he was saying. Uh, so he put a, a price on their heads um, and basically, basically an execution order. And then he accused me of being a spy. And I had to go into hiding in Monrovia while the offensive was going on. And it was a, just a very, and the embassy finally got me out. It was a very scary time. I didn't know Tim yet, but we were on opposite sides of this front line, and we would meet years later. Um, and, but it was, you know, the, sort of like this very intense African Civil War. And it finally stopped when, a, when an American warship showed up offshore and threatened to come in with the Marines. And, um, and the Marines finally landed and without a shot being fired, everyone stopped fighting. And I mean, that's the power of the U.S. Marines. They came ashore, and that was the beginning of an era of peace that has lasted till today. And, and nobody had to fire a shot. It was really quite an extraordinary thing. And I remember being almost attacked by a mob at one point. Uh, there was a lot of shelling, and a lot of civilians were dying. And a, and a group, a crowd formed around me in the street. And there's dead bodies everywhere, and this crowd of desperate civilians surrounded me and started getting very aggressive. And what they were upset, they found out I was American. And what they were upset about, they was like, you have a battleship right, you, you Americans have a warship right offshore and you're not doing anything. You need to invade. You need to invade this country and bring peace because, um, you know, we're suffering here and you have the power to stop this war. Why are you just sitting on your battleship? What's the use of that? You know, and, I, and I'm, I what, what am I, I, I'm like, listen, I'm not the government. I'm just a person, like, you know, but it was very, very ugly and I was almost attacked because of this. And then finally they came ashore and that's what happened. But it was a very interesting, this is during Iraq and I was totally against Iraq, but this is the flip side of that sort of like American presence in the world is the flip side of people who actually wanted U.S. soldiers there. And of course they're getting ignored. Mm-hmm. The, um, the experience that um, uh, there was a, a school for the blind, that was in Liberia, correct? The Milton Margai School? Uh, that was in Sierra Leone, actually. Okay, Sierra Leone, yeah. Let's talk about that, and then let's also talk about uh, what Tim created with the uh, – actually, I think that that was before he even came to Liberia, and it was featured in the film as one of the key reasons um, that inspired him to come into image making at this level. Um, could you talk a bit about that experience of, um, of the soccer match up in the U.K.? Yeah. And and you, I love it in the film. You, um, <laughs> there's a poignant picture. It's a still photo of uh, a traditional, um, traditionally dressed Sierra Leonean man. I'm assuming he's probably a father or a relative of one of the soccer players, and then a traditionally um, decked out uh, elder um, British woman in the same yes. picture. Uh, so let's talk about that for a minute and then how that led Tim into um, Liberia, Sierra Leone. 
Well, there was some kind of exchange program after the Civil War in Sierra Leone with ex-fighters trying to sort of decommission them psychologically from war. And what they brought a bunch of these guys, child, former child soldiers, uh, they all played soccer, obviously, you know, it's Africa and everyone plays soccer. They brought them to England for some exhibition matches. Um, and then I, I believe they sent some English, English soccer team, youth team, to Sierra Leone for an exhibition match in Sierra Leone. And, and, and um, so th Tim, that was Tim's first sort of overseas assignment. And he, what he liked about it is that ostensibly the photos were about soccer. But he said that soccer was a kind of what he called a Trojan horse that allowed him to visually rep discuss war. What the real topic was war. But the Trojan horse was these soccer games. And this is what got allowed the topic into the conversation. Um, and uh, he really liked that idea of Trojan horses. He continued spending time in Sierra Leone, the lovely country. I was there during the Civil War as well. The, the, the RUF, the rebels who tried to take over Sierra Leone, were sponsored by Charles Taylor in Liberia. That's what led Tim back to Liberia eventually, was curiosity about that. But the RUF were renowned for their bar barbarism and their cruelty. And they would sweep through towns, and they would cut off people's arms and rape the women and, you know, just ghastly, 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 horrible crimes. Um, and one of the things they would do is melt plastic and pour it in children's eyes to blind them. I mean, you know, you can't even oh. imagine it, right? And so there was a school for children who'd been blinded in this way by the RUF. That barbarity was what finally got the, the Brits to send in a military force and finally stop the Civil War in 2000, I believe it was. Um, I think they lost one soldier, but it was a fairly, like, cost-free intervention that really finally stopped that awful, awful Civil War. And so then, and then after that was when Tim was there, and he went to this school, the Milton Margai School for the Blind. These are children who've been intentionally blinded by rebels. Um, and he did this just beautiful black and white photo series of these children. And they're, they're images of war, but they're, they're images of hope, too. It's not the usual images people associate with war. These are young people who are learning to cope in life, even though they're blind. And they're very, very beautiful images. And that was what got Tim sort of hooked on West Africa. Mm. Now, Sebastian, aren't these images still on display in New York City? And they're they're traveling around the world, right? And and not just the Milton Margai series, but but also others like the Sleeping Soldiers. And yeah. Otherwise. Yes. I mean, Sleeping Soldiers appears once in a while. I don't know. Um, is it still on display in New York? It might be. I I can't remember. Uh, certainly, if you Google his name or Google Sleeping Soldiers, you know anyone can find that out. Right. I think people can also go to timheatherington.org. Um, yes. I believe his mother is uh, is coordinating, well, both his mother and father are coordinating a foundation where people can make donations for humanitarian efforts and for youth efforts um, in the continuum. And we can talk yeah. more about that later if you'd like. Yeah. Let's go back for a second to the Trojan horse um, because I think that that's one of the key themes from my perspective of which way is the front line from here and of Tim's life. Um, the the provision of uh, creating um, profound and unlikely channels for there to be the the strange combination perhaps of eliciting difficult subjects to the surface 
and also showing yeah. the common humanity that we share. Can you share a little bit more about how Tim felt about this? Was it a key element of his of his offering to life and and what he did? Well, his I mean his sort of ethos as a photographer. There's this unfortunate phrase, taking a picture, right? And right. you know, in the in the third world, you get this like tall white guy walking around, snapping photos, and it can very much feel like you're like to him, to him, it could very much feel like he was taking something from them, right? And he wanted to change that relationship so that it was more of a conversation, and it didn't feel like stealing so much as sharing. And mm. so he would engage people literally in conversation when he was taking their photos. And that would bring out an emotionality in them that really made the photos, his photos different from some other photographers. And he really felt that the relationship between the photographer and the subject was a, was, it should be a relationship that flowed in both directions and benefited both, both parties, both cultures. Um, and that brought a profoundly human, humanistic aspect to his work. Um, and so I, I think, you know, ultimately he, he didn't want to be, he wanted to be a photographer who um, was, who ultimately was ethical and just and egalitarian in his relationship with his subjects. He wanted to do that because he was a decent person. But I also think it made, it had the result of making his photography absolutely extraordinary and profound. Mm. Do you, was it his uh, intention on a very conscious level to, I mean, he would, like uh, James Brabazon said in the film, um, he was just him. But did, did he make a conscious decision at some point to, you know, he, he had no walls around him, it seemed. I I'd, I'd never knew him personally, but it's just very clear in witnessing in this film how he moves in the world. He's he's uh, he doesn't have pretenses. He's very real, and yeah. um, his ability to connect with people, like you're saying, um, illuminated something in in the still images and in the moving film that perhaps uh, was you know his great gift. But was did he recognize that in his lifetime? Did he see uh, that that aspect of himself? I, I think he knew he was a little different, you know, and I mean, you know, just he understood that he had the power, he had the ability, he had the power to um, make pretty much anyone like him pretty much instantly, you know, and <laughs> he, he really enjoyed that and, and he wasn't manipulative with it. He, you know, he used that power to, to good ends, uh, but, but he knew he, he knew he had it. Well, and he certainly seemed like um, he he was a, a a free spirit, an innocent soul of sorts, and and one who was very brilliant at the same time. He yeah. he seemed to have a very brilliant mind, and uh, an uncanny ability again with this Trojan horse concept um, to bring through uh, media in various forms, image making in various forms. Yeah. Um, the important aspects of, of bringing our world closer together because there's so many realities going on. So um, before we break for, for some uh, questions from the webcast uh, with Matthew, let's, let's just talk a little bit about the role that you see of the media in these ways. 
what is our what is the media's responsibility? Do you think? Uh, it, uh, in in wartime. In wartime. Or, or, in or, or generally. In creating uh, bridges between, uh, you know, for example, with with this idea of, like, I'm sitting here in Colorado in a really nice home with three bathrooms, <laughs> three bedrooms, and uh, I've never been on a front line. I've never I've never experienced directly what it is like to uh, witness war, to see the effects of it. I have some friends who've been in the Peace Corps, um, who have been in Sierra Leone and spent time there. But I've never directly experienced that. But through uh, Restrepo, through um, Long Story Bit by Bit, Infidel, and, you know, which way is the front line from here, and so on and so forth, I feel like I've, I've been able to come closer, uh, and as well, reading your book, War, to come closer to an understanding of uh, what it might be like. And still, that's no, you know, that's not even close. Um, but at least the, it seems like the, the, what you're providing, because you are a part of uh, an international media, is a window of some sorts. And I'm just, that's where I'm trying to go with this. Is, yeah. Well, I, you know, I think, I think the media, I mean, it's such a broad term, but I think the media's responsibility is to expose people to the experience of others. Um, you know, sometimes it's investigative. Uh, some, you know, sometimes it's uncovering government, mis, you know, wrongdoing or fraud or whatever. But it also just includes exposing people to the lives of others. Um, there was a wonderful book uh, called Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. It was about poverty in, uh, in the Appalachians um, in the 1930s. And it wasn't a political diatribe. It wasn't a political drag. It was just a look at rural American poverty. And, it, you know, sort of like it's all you really need to say about it. Like you don't need to tell people that poverty is bad and wrong and we should do something about it. All you need to do is show it, and almost everyone will come to that conclusion. And you know, I think there's a great power in the media. You know, as soon as the media starts advocating things, mm-hmm. it becomes op-ed, it becomes op-eds, and it's no longer journalism. And, mm-hmm. and the advocacy is very, very important. It's extremely important, but it's not journalism. Well, journalism does cool. not. Do, I mean, the, the the problem with advocacy, calling advocacy journalism is then you have to call Fox News journalism, and we really mustn't do that. So it's a mm-hmm. very bright line, but I think the media has to understand that bright line and provide both to the population. And what Tim and I tried to do with Restrepo is to just give a look, give people access to what it feels like to be in combat. And that makes some people more, you know, even more pacifist, and it makes other people even more patriotic and proud of the soldiers. I mean, you know, it's like it can do whatever you want it to do. But Tim and I really tried not to, not to incorporate our own agenda or our own interpretation on that reality. And that, that's what I appreciate so much myself about what, what you pulled off there is that you, it, it's undistorted, um, uncolored with opinion. It is what it is. And, Thank you. Um, and I, I, th- I think that that's one of the most powerful tools that we have. Um, you, Thank you. At one point... I I remember there was a dialogue at the film premiere in um, New York about self-selecting imagery um, in the media. And do you do you feel that that what you provide and what Tim uh, 
provided was a, perhaps a response um, to counter, you know, to counteract um, to the, the, the self-selecting media that we see. I mean, we're shown what they want us to see, and yet well, every, everyone yeah, has ahead. an agenda. Everyone has, you know, IBM has an agenda. The U.S. government has an agenda. The Taliban have an agenda. I mean, everybody has an agenda. The only people who should not have any agenda is the media. Mm-hmm. And so if you ask, you know, a public affairs officer for the U.S. military to, 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 to send some photos about what's happening in Afghanistan, he's not going to show civilian casualties, even though he knows that they're happening. He's going to show photos of soldiers building schools or whatever. Like, right? I mean, of course, right? They have an agenda. Um, right. Someone who's, you know, you know, campaigning against the war and very anti-war and very political and very active, they're not going to show soldiers building schools. They're going to show civilian casualties. You know, of course, like that's their agenda. No problem. People are allowed to have agendas and they should have agendas. The only people who should not have an agenda is the media. And if you're an objective journalist, you should play both prosecution and defense at the same time, no matter what your personal feelings are. Mm-hmm. If you do anything less than that, you're not a journalist or something else. Mm-hmm. Well said. I, I really appreciate uh, this dialogue thus far, and I, I'm, it's an honor to have you here, Sebastian. And um, I just want to welcome anybody who's just now joining us. Um, it's around the early afternoon lunch hour, I know, on the East Coast and worldwide, uh, various time zones that people are joining us from. So welcome. I'm your host, Molly Rowan-Leach, and we're talking with Sebastian Younger, uh, we're focused today on the film Which Way is the Front Line from Here, which I highly recommend. And there's a Facebook page for it, Which Way is the Front Line from Here, The Life and Time of Tim Hetherington. Tim was a war, uh, excuse me, he was an image maker and a humanitarian and um, an extraordinary soul in his own right. And uh, we're talking about his life. We're also hoping that you might check out some of Sebastian's work. Uh, one of the most recent works of his is the book War. I, I read it recently and was, was very moved by the window that was provided there in your experiences. Um, also check out Long Story Bit by Bit, Liberia Retold. That's by Tim Hetherington. That's an excellent uh photojournalistic um, journey of a book. It's a, a beautiful layout, and there's a lot of insights in there. And then Infidel is another book by Tim Hetherington uh, that includes the Sleeping Soldiers series. And we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, some of the, the work that came as a result of Tim's tragic passing in just a little bit. But right now I'd like to welcome into the conversation Matt Albrecht, who is the Vice President of the Peace Alliance and who might have some web questions to to submit to the conversation here. So welcome, Matt. Great to be here. Such an inspiring and informative conversation. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you, thank you. There are some good questions, um, and I don't know, Molly, if you want to direct people on how to how to post questions if they have any others. Uh, but we have if you are on already. the webcast right now, you can. there's a module on the left-hand side of your screen that if you do have a webcast question you'd like to submit, you can do that by um, going to that left-hand box, which is the module to submit your question. You can do that right now or at any time during the rest of our time together here. If you have a live question here on the, the telecouncil, 
you can press 1 on your telephone keypad or on your Skype pad. Okay? Cool. Well, there's a great question from Leonora. I'm not sure where she is from, but it says, I'm hoping Sebastian will have time to comment on his recommendations for where we should go from here. That might be something that's covered. <laughs> that's pretty broad. Pretty broad. I, I, in what context do you think she means? Uh, I'm guessing around the, the film because the, it's in quotes. So maybe what are the outtakes for you from the film? Or, or there's other questions if that feels too broad. Well, I mean, I think the film, I think Tim's life in the film sort of asks important questions about the relationship between the first world and the third world and, um, and what, what does the world, what does the international community do when there's a war? Um, it's very appealing to protest wars that are generated in Washington or in London or in Paris or whatever. But it's, it's a lot more complicated to know what to do when there's a war that starts all on its own in a small West African country where people are really suffering. You know, what does the West do? What does the world do? Do you step in or not step in? And, and that, was a, that was a question that was very, very urgent for Tim because, and, and for myself as well because we both saw an enormous amount of suffering in wars that really could have been stopped quite easily by the West, and they just weren't. And... Um, uh, so I, you know, I, I think one of the things that needs to happen, where do we go from here, you know, is, is like some kind of consensus and legal framework for, you know, intervening in the Bosnias of the world, the Rwandas, the Sierra Leones, the Liberias, this stuff is going to keep happening. What do we do about it? Just not doing anything is not a moral position. That's not a truly pacifist position. It's something lesser. And we, we need to formulate a response that, that's both ethical and active. That's great. And there's some, some really brilliant, innovative people out there who are peace builders who are even just going to witness with cameras and, and really can help make an impact. There's so many ways to make an impact that I hope that we will take that question seriously. Mm -hmm. See, here's one from Teresa. It says, I saw this documentary yesterday on HBO and was deeply moved by Mr. Junger's very intimate, fiercely honest, and loving tribute to his friend. Such a well-done production. I'm interested to know how making this film has affected you, him, or redirected your passions in any way. Well, t you know, as soon as Tim got killed, I mean, within a couple of hours, I had made the decision after 20 years of war reporting to stop covering wars. Um, and I have not been back to war since he was killed. And so I've had to, and war, you know, war, I mean, it's tricky, right? Like, it's not, um, as an experience, it's incredibly intense and incredibly meaningful. And it, the decision to no longer go to war, it feels like it should be a relief. Um, it also feels like quite a loss, a personal loss to make that decision. And um, I had to really sort of like go through this process of convincing myself that my work could be just as meaningful and just as intense um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a context where people are not shooting at each other and they're not shooting at me. And that took a while to figure out how to do. Um, and I think making the film was part of that process that I had of unhooking from war and redirecting my energies towards something, uh, some, something else. Thank uh -huh. you. That's great. Matt, other questions? I think there's one from Laura. Were you going to okay, offer that one up? That one, sure. Sure. 
Uh, Laura says, uh, Dafuri community is grateful for Tim's work in visually advertising their plight in Sudan. Are there ways they can help advance, uh, or, yeah, they can help advance your effort to promote his role, and through him, the potential role of others? Uh, I don't Before know that much about Darfur. I know Tim worked there. I'm, 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 I'm not, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I'm not, not quite sure what she's asking, and I'm, I'm not quite sure if I have a good answer for her. Got it. Got it. Got it. Let's move on. There's another question from Daniel. It says, um, and, and I, I don't know that you know these answers, but if you don't, that's fine. Could you comment perhaps on some of the formative years of Tim's young life? I was interested to know more about his time at Stonyhurst College in Oxford and how mm. this influenced his, his ideas and work. I read on his memorial a university friend writing that at university he, he also said that he never wanted to be part of the system, for example. Well, Tim, Tim was sent to a Jesu uh, Jesuit boarding school quite early in his life. He was, I think, eight or nine years old, and that affected him a lot. Um, and he was not a religious person at all when I knew him anyway, and uh, I, I suspect it might have been as the result of, you know, what was probably a pretty rigorous religious education in, in, in the Jesuit school. Um, I don't know that much about his sort of early years as, uh, in, in college, except, you know, like from what I heard talking to some friends of his from back then, that he was sort of like noticeably brilliant and charismatic and everyone loved him and he was clearly going somewhere. You know, like he just had that energy, energy about him at 21, 22, 23, like this is a guy who's headed somewhere. It took him his 20s. I mean, you know, he sort of diverted into some, you know, more carefree experiences in his 20s. But by the, by the time he was 30, he was like, you know, headed headed for, you know, a really extraordinary career as a as a photographer. And, and but I think he had that sense about him very early on. In people, you know, people who knew him sort of thought that's where the, you know this guy's going somewhere. It, it, he also went to, I believe, uh, spent some time in India, and in the film. <laughs> You you share, uh, or at least his father shared that they they got the occasional facts from him while he was in, doing some world travels previous to the time that he began to become a uh, an image maker. Do you ever recall any any stories from him regarding that particular trip to India, or uh, yeah, he, maybe it was he, Nepal? He got an inheritance from. Um, I think one of his grandparents died or something like that. And he decided to spend some of it on traveling. And he went to, uh, to India and Nepal, I believe. I and mean, he spent a couple of